Children come into a home where they were never expected. A ghost makes itself at home. And a cat becomes home. Hi, I'm Melanie Tate and this is Now Hear This. You might have guessed by now that today's stories are all about home. The things that make a home and the things that go inside a home. If you're new to Now Hear This, this is pure storytelling. It's people getting up, telling a story from their lives in front of an audience, usually in their own hometown. The stories you're hearing today come from all over the place. The first from the place that I kind of think is a paradise and would happily bring Now Hear This to every single week, Noosa. The storyteller is Judy Hinwood. Well, we had a fabulous life. John and I were 39, had a magical house we were just building, great profession. Friends arrived and said, we're going to adopt a child. And I said, why on earth would you do that, Dot? Their life was like ours, working fantastically. No kids. Thank you, God. It worked out so well. This lifetime, we've got it to live on our own. However, by the end of the weekend, something unexpected, really, really unexpected happened. My intuition kicked in. There are children waiting for you. <laughs> okay. All right. So talk to John. And he said, mm, I'm feeling the same thing. At 39, we weren't allowed adopt children. There was a loophole. We did the paperwork. We explored how to get children in. Ah, we can do it from Chile. That feels right. There's a boy about five and a girl about three. They're our children and they're in Chile. Right. We waited for phone calls. Each night there were phone calls. Six-month-old twins? Absolutely not. I'm not going into six-month-old <laughs> twins. Not happening. And finally, there's a boy five and a girl three waiting for you. The lawyers phoned from Chile. We were on the next plane. We had a friend looking after our practice. There we were, fronted up to the judge in Concepcion in Chile, where our children were. And she said, their father has refused permission. We said, ah, we thought they were orphans. No, she said, but our hearts knew our children were here. So she gave us names of orphanages. On the bus, out to the country we went. There was a jail. I swear it looked like a jail. Grey walls, barbed wire, high, high, big iron doors that clanged behind us as we came in. In front of us, 400 children, 400 boys from 4 to 14. 400. And in this, we have to find our children. One little boy, about five. So they took us into a room. Now, the social workers at that time, well, and now, of course, were fabulous. But at that time, there were 600,000 children in orphanages in Chile because in Pinochet's reign, parents just disappeared. They were just gone, right? 
all these boys, they didn't have a soccer ball, they didn't have a toy, they didn't have school, they didn't have anything. They were in long dormitories that stank of urine. It was just awful. All we wanted to do was put these 400 children onto a jumbo jet. And of course that wasn't going to happen. Where do we find one child in all this? The social workers took us into a room, sat John and I down, and they said, oh, there's a be- there are two beautiful boys, seven and a half and nearly nine. And we said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't bring us children that we can't adopt, please. They said, you have to see these children. I said, no, please don't. It's, it's hard enough already. There's 400, and we're already having trouble leaving these children behind. She brought two little boys in. The same ones, seven and a half, nearly nine. Their little hands had been just wiped and there was dirt in all the little crevices in their hands. They'd slicked back their hair with water and put on a little pair of um, jeans and blue, blue jumper each, sat one on each of our knees. My heart filled. I was in tears. I looked across and John was in tears. We swapped children. More tears. They were our children. Unexpected? Yeah. Yeah. From there we looked for our daughter because we knew there was a child. We went from the judge in Concepcion out to where these children had been born, out in the back blocks. And the judge there, wouldn't you know, his, his hobby was Australian history. <laughs> so we took these two boys. We were told, you have to take their sister. We said, aha, they do have a sister. Yeah, but she's ten and a half. So, ooh, I don't think so. We can't help this child. We came home without her. Two weeks later, our son, the older boy, turned bright red when I mentioned, you have a sister. Top of his head to his feet. We made a phone call to Chile. And arranged for that trial to come. And she was big. And she was scary. <laughs> like, real scary. And they all came with what I now call their survival skills. How they'd managed to survive up till then. Unexpected? Absolutely. But what joy. What joy. Through all the challenges that they've given us. We now have eight grandchildren from these wonderful kids. Judy Hinwood told that story at the Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Noosa at the Noosa Long Weekend Festival. Our next story was told at a recent storytelling slam in Sydney. The theme was gone. Here's Nina Sunday. So I discovered this awful smell coming from a box of scarves in my bedroom on my shelf. And 
I couldn't ignore it. It was... This is gross. It was like bad foot odour with a bit of a sick smell to it. I couldn't ignore it, so... I, I kept looking for something dead inside, but no, I just... It was a plastic box of scarves. I just took them straight to the laundry, shook them into the washing machine, ran a cycle and thought, right, that should be, that should be it, hung them out to dry. And yes, the, there was no more smell in the scarves, except there was now a smell in the washing machine. <laughs> and I don't know, it just kind of moved around the house. And my husband and I, we'd be in the kitchen and we had a little table there and we'd be enjoying the view and the smell would hit our nose kind of simultaneously. We'd go, oh, what is that smell? And we'd leave the kitchen and go to the lounge room and we'd be there maybe watching TV or, or doing some craft and the smell would follow us. We just couldn't work it out. We lived with this for several months. I should point out where we lived. And if any of you know the Northern Beaches, know North Head, there is the quarantine station. And every Saturday night they have a ghost tour. So there's a bit of a clue. So we kind of got used to this bad smell and we kind of got used to the dance of moving from one end of the apartment to the other. And we had some friends over with their two teenage sons. And we were enjoying drinks and uh, nibbles and um, the, the smell hit our nose, noses simultaneously. We looked at each other and we said, hey, everybody, we've all got to go into the lounge room. And they go, why, why, ah, well, we'll tell you. So we just went down the hall and went into the lounge room and we fessed up that we think we have a ghost. It's a smelly ghost. It's not... <laughs> It's not one that you see, it just has it's this terrible smell. <laughs> and they were kind of incredulous, but the boys were intrigued. Teenagers, and they kind of hung out back in the kitchen. And they would come into the lounge room where we were chatting away, saying, giving us updates, saying, oh, it started to move. It's coming down the hall. But a ghost doesn't have legs and it's slow. So they kept tracking it and they'd come back and give us a report. Oh, it's moved about a metre. We're following it. Anyway, very, gradually, very gradually, because, you know, they're here for a few hours, it arrived in the lounge room. So that was when we really had to re think about what's the solution to this. We can't have guests over and they're wondering what this smell is. So someone suggested an exorcist. And someone recommended this indigenous exorcist that they knew that was really good and worked to donation. So I made the phone call, made the appointment, picked him up, drove him to our apartment in Manly. But before we arrived, he said, stop the car. He got out and there was this eucalypt tree and he pulled a branch down. He said, right, take me to your house. And at the entrance to the house, he pulled out a lighter and started burning all the leaves and they were smoking. It was really smoking. So he comes into the house with this smoking branch and he says, show me the place. And I said, well, it's living in the washing machine. <laughs> right. 
so we go to the laundry, bathroom laundry, and he hands me the branch and he puts his arms out. I'm not, he said a lot of words, but this is what I remember. Be gone to the void. Be gone to the void. <laughs> so, uh, that's fine. He did, he did what he needed to do, and I think we gave him a cup of tea, handed him his generous donation, and we drove him back to the city where he went on his way. Now, overnight, it wasn't in the bathroom like it used to be, but smelling around, it was in the dial. It was still there. And I went, oh, how disappointing is that? It's still there. Another couple of days passed and I got a brainwave. I went, it started with the box of scarves. Maybe it likes boxes. So I had a cosmetic bag with a zip and I thought, I'll just put it on top of the lid of the washing machine. And I went to bed. The next morning, it was in the cosmetic bag. I zipped up the bag. I went down the backyard. I threw it in the far corner. It was gone. Nina Sunday told that story at the Now Hear This Sydney Storytelling Slam earlier this year. The final story today is from a special Now Hear This we did at the Sydney Writers' Festival where we asked a bunch of writers to tell us about a time they've actually been lost for words. Chris Summers had just won the Patrick White Playwrights Award the night before he told this story. Thank you very much. I'm a playwright, so it's my business to make sure that my characters aren't lost for words. And I think sometimes my attraction to the craft of playwriting is because I myself am so rarely lost for words. Um, but sometimes we can't control that, and sometimes it takes over. I'm going to talk to you today about Kitsia. I met Kitsia in a car park. Uh, I was about nine years old. Um, she was about three years old. Uh, she was being held by a vet nurse, and um, the first thing that I noticed about her were these ginormous eyes. They were just so full, radiating, like enormous, and I was drawn to them completely and immediately fell in love. This, um, this strange Himalayan cat uh, didn't have much of a nose, so she kind of quite squished, um, but was covered in fluff, and just looked like she was really wanting to be loved. Um, my entire family, pretty much, it was not much hesitation. We, we took her in and took her home, and we were so excited to kind of show her um, our house and to integrate her into our life. But little did we know that sort of her, her, her talents were slightly misplaced. She um, had an aptitude for finding a lovely patch of carpet and um, leaving her business there, uh, particularly when someone else was around. And... Uh, and we were, she was trying to get our attention while she was doing it. Um, we later found out as well that whenever we went on holidays and someone was, uh, was, was looking after the house, that she would uh, routinely go to each of our beds and lay a little present there. Uh, it was her way of showing that she loved us, I'm sure. 
She was a very strange cat, a, a very misanthropic kind of cat. She sort of hung around, but if you got too close, she'd disappear straight away and was, was really quite neurotic. But then you'd be sitting down and, and just sort of sitting there, minding your own business, and you'd look up and there was this fluff ball looking at you expectantly. But what she really did and what was interesting about this cat was the way that she drew my family together. We, we'd had birds before, we'd had mice, but Kitsia actually gave us something to talk about. She gave us something there in the room that, that we were able to, to kind of look at and, and joke about and make fun of. And it was, it was something that, that gelled our family. And for me, uh, you know, growing up with this, with this pet, it was, it was really lovely to, to have around. But as you do, you, you grow up and, and your relationship with uh, your family and the, the animals in your house changes. Um, I, you know, the, the moment I turned 17, I moved away to Melbourne. And every time I came back, though, uh, it, was, it was so wonderful to, to kind of just be able to sit in a room and to have mum and dad hanging out and, and this cat would just suddenly appear. And again, it felt like we were a family. I, I moved to Melbourne when I was 17 to study law. And uh, right at the end of my, my degree, I went over to Austin, Texas to, to finish my studies there. I came back in early 2012 to study playwriting at NIDA. And when I came back in, in that January 2012, it was a really, really hot January, I, I noticed that Kitsia wasn't quite herself. She, she, she'd always been a strange neurotic cat, but, but she'd started to, to sort of be... Uh, roaming the, the house at three o'clock in the morning, meowing and hiding, kind of keeping her face sort of burrowed in walls. And she just, she just wasn't the, the, the cat that we remembered. Uh, about a week after that, I, I was severely suffering from jet lag still. And I remember one morning seeing her and she had uh, been, been, she always liked to scratch behind her ear, but she'd scratch so hard that she'd actually managed to rip part of her eye out. And, and that had got infected over the course of only a couple of hours, and I, I, I really didn't know what to do. I went to mum and dad and said, I, I don't think the, the cat is well. I, I think Kisa needs to go to the vet. And this is a cat that had never been to the vet before. My parents were quite ardent about, you know, she's a battler, she's a survivor, she can do without it. But I, 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 I went in the car with, with mum that morning, and, you know, I, I said, mum, don't worry, I'm, I'm going to be the strong one here. I'm going to stand by you and, and, and really together we'll, you know, we'll figure out this out. It'll be fine. And we took the cat to, to the vet and, uh, and the, the prognosis was, was really not good. Uh, they said that there was a, a possibility that, that, that Kissy would be able to, to have her eye removed and, and you know, she might be able to have some semblance of a, of a happy life. But she was 15 or 16 by this point and you know, they didn't know whether or not she was going to survive the anaesthetic. So I, I said to mum... You know, this is something that, that we have to do. There was a kind of a... I was lost for words in that moment because we didn't need to say it. And mum left and I said, I'm going to stay. And I sat in that room with the cat as the vet nurse injected the, uh, the, the poison that, that uh, led her, her life to end. And I, I was saying her name over and over and over again because I wanted her to know that, that I was there in, in her presence. And uh, it was th this moment where I thought that I could muster all of my strength and, and be the person who would never, ever, ever crack. And the way in which I, I watched her take her last breath and the, the way in which I saw her eyes widen and her muscles tense and then relax and then this one last kind of gasp. The vet nurse asked me if I needed a moment and I, I was lost for words because... 
I, I had never disappeared into this chasm of emptiness before. And at the same time, I knew, I knew I am this privileged 24-year-old educated man. I should not be feeling like this, but I just couldn't help it. And the, the vet nurse left, and I, I, I took a, a little bit of a towel and I, I, I wiped the, the infected eye to, to kind of clean her up a little bit and, and wrapped her up in the towel. And we, we took her home, and the first thing I did was, was kind of lay her in the backyard, and then I, <laughs> I got a shovel and went out to the pet cemetery where we'd uh, put Charlie the, the green budgie, uh, Ebony the black cat who got hit by a car, Spike the black cat who got hit by a car, um, the, the mice that my brother and I had growing up. And I wasn't thinking anything, I couldn't say anything, but I just dug. I just kept digging and I, I knew that you know this hole wasn't going to be effective enough or that I wasn't doing it properly but I just needed to keep doing it in that moment. We, we buried the cat and the, the kind of protocol was that we wouldn't talk about it. So my, my, my mother and my, my dad and I, we just kind of let it be. And what I couldn't tell them and, and what I still feel to this day is a sense of guilt because I keep thinking, well, what if we got that operation or, or what if we'd done something different? About 12 months later, I got a call from, from my mum saying, well, you know how your dad's retired and it's been a while, we haven't, you know, had a, had a pet... And I just thought, no, this is not a good idea. You know, we're all going to be emotional wrecks again. Something like this is going to happen again. But Dad decided to take on a guide dog, which, of course, I thought, oh, God, that means after 12 months you have to give them up. You know, you only raise them as puppies. We're setting ourselves up for complete failure. What are you doing? But by some stroke of luck or, or, or sadness, but I think it's mostly luck, that the pup that my parents adopted uh, has arthritis and he's not able to be a guide dog. So they've spent the last 12 months raising this dog and it's brought them so much happiness and so much joy and again it's gelled us together as a family. I'm always deeply suspicious of people who don't love animals. I think the way in which we love animals reveals so much about the way we love each other and the way we love ourselves. And I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be able to have this now <laughs> beaming one-year-old Labrador hanging around, barking and chasing us in the yard and me chasing him and as a way also to get closer to my parents. Thank you. Uh, whether you're a cat or a dog or a horse or a mouse person, anyone who's had a pet will surely get that story. Chris Summers. Today's stories were recorded by Peter McMurray, Martin Peralta and Andre Shabanov. I'm Melanie Tate. I hope you have a great week and get a story or two out of it. Hold up. 